So this is uh, this morning is going to be a very um, informal and ideally very interactive morning. We've been talking about this for a couple of weeks. I feel like I'm about to get really bad feedback. Is that just me? Okay, I'll, I'll quiet down. Um, we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks. We wanted to take a pause before we go into the, um, the second major section of Genesis. And we just wanted to do some Q&A. Um, that means you can ask questions. We need you to ask questions. We have some that have been sent in via the survey beforehand. But let's start with some prayer, and then I'm just going to do a quick summary overview of Genesis and the main structures of what we've covered in the first 11 chapters. And the Q&A time and the interaction time does not have to be you know, super specific to the text. We, we just want to make sure we're on the same page and that you guys are good before we move forward because we've covered a lot of complex, challenging, deeply theological, sometimes scientific kind of stuff. And, uh, and, we, and you guys have been great, and I know people have been excited about it. But before we keep pressing on, this is our time to get the reset, get the interaction. We'll probably do a little bit of extended worship time. I don't have a long sermon um, prepared, and I heard that collective sigh of relief. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for each and every person in this room. Thank you for uh, the people who are watching online and joining us that way, or who will participate in, in the future and see uh, what you did this morning. Lord, we pray for your spirit to be alive and active in this time and in the heart of what we're doing here. Father, we recognize that um, church is not just information. It's not just sitting in a seat. Lord, it's, it's knowing you, knowing your word, building that relationship. So uh, bless this time, Lord, while we, while we pause and uh, just collectively see, kind of weigh where we are with you and what you're showing us in your word. Enlighten our hearts, Lord. Give us courage. Give us uh, good discernment of the text. Help us not to um, consider too much or too little of anything that you've put in front of us. And we put all this before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so while you start thinking about thoughts and questions, I'm just going to do a flyby on Genesis and the first 11 um, chapters. And it will be a flyby. I'm just going to point out the main things that happened and just some, some repetitive similarities in there and some of the stuff that we learned. So Genesis 1 through 11 is the story of Yahweh, the creator Yahweh, and the people in the world. And the reason why that, what, why there's a transition when we get into chapter 12 is it's, it, right now we're on this very, very zoomed out global perspective. And what happens starting in chapter 12 is we zoom into one guy. And we really spend the rest of Genesis following that guy and his family line all the way into all the way through Genesis and into Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and ultimately all the way through to Christ, who is a descendant of that line. And so the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the setup, the global setup for bringing out this one family narrative from the rest of the world. So that's why we're pausing here, because we have to have the global perspective correct. You may recall that uh, at the beginning when we did the Genesis overview and biblical plot, then what we, um, what we addressed was there, there are three major of events of falling in Genesis. 
you have the creation, and then you have man and woman, and they fall in the Garden of Eden. By fall, I mean they sin in the Garden of Eden, and they are therefore cut off from God. Then we have the fall of the heavenly beings in chapter 6, where the heavenly beings directly disobey God, and there's that fall, which results in all kinds of problems, and ultimately that uh, leads us into the fall of the nations at Babel. So we have the fall of man and woman, the fall of the heavenly beings, or the sons of God, and then we have the fall of the nations. And all through the Bible, you're going to see this contrast playing back and forth between God's nation and the nations. And it's going to tie up in Jesus, like we talked about in the Tower of Babel sermon a couple weeks ago, it all reconciles in Christ where he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me, go and tell the nations. And you see that play out through Revelation. So we talked a lot about the nations, but the whole nation's narrative is really about the, the spiritual conflict between those who have rebelled against God, how that has affected and corrupted us and drawn us into individual rebellion against God, and how God uses individuals to call individuals back to him so that he can reconcile all of creation back to himself. So it's a global collective story, but it's also an individual story, and that story plays out in you, and it plays out in me, and it plays out in every single person in this room. And, every, and that, that battle happens on an individual scale, but it's also happening on a global and national scale. When I say national, I just mean the nations. I don't mean our, our politics are sometimes distinct from the, uh, from the nation's narrative and scripture. We have this strange repetition that happens in the first, chapters, uh, first 11 chapters of Genesis because really we get the story of humanity twice. When I mean twice, we get the biblical plot is foreshadowed two times in Genesis. So in the beginning, you have this creation where there's water and dry land, and then rebellion by way of fruit, followed by a curse, followed by a contrast between the descendants of the righteous descendant versus the unrighteous descendant, followed by, by a, a judgment, which comes back to water and dry land, uh, eating of fruit, a nakedness, a covering, a contrast of descendants, followed by, or with a, a curse, followed by a contrast of descendants, followed by a, um, a, uh, a narrative of drawing out a guy. So we've done this three times now, and if, they, if you didn't follow that, that's Adam and Eve in the garden, after God creates the, the world by separating water from dry land, blesses them, be fruitful, increase, fill, gives them guidance on what to eat, what not to eat. They use the fruit of that to rebel, and then they see nakedness. And God covers that, but there's a curse following it. And then, they, uh, and then that, as that descends into chaos through the next descendants, then we get to Noah. Same thing. Water. Dry land. Uh, command to be fruitful. Fill the earth. Blessing on them. Followed by disobedience by way of fruit. Followed by nakedness. And we didn't spend a lot of time on that, but Noah drank too much, was naked. Had one of his sons laughing at him while the other sons covered him at their own expense. And that resulted in a curse, a contrast of the obedient nations, the disobedient nations descending back into chaos at Babel. So we've done that two times through Genesis. And when the Bible repeats something, it's trying to make a point. So on one hand, you can look at Genesis 1 through 11 and say, well, you just have these, these, weird, these weird stories that just kind of seem jumbled and thrown together. 
of like, well, we got this guy, and then we got this weird angel thing that goes on, and then we've got uh, Cain and Abel, and and we've got this flood, and how does this all make sense? But it's it's actually repeating the same themes over and over, because what's going to happen again, only this time through the rest of the entire Bible, with with micro shadowings and people like David and stuff like that. But the rest of the entire Bible is recreation, drawing out of a guy with a blessing, and then a disobedience that falls into rebellion, that falls into a contrast of drawing out the obedient from the disobedient with God reconciling and covering them to, to bring them back to glory. And he's going to do that ultimately at the return of Christ. So that's the, the repeated theme that happens again and again and again through Scripture. So first it happens on the, the initial creation, then it happens on a global national level, and now he's saying, now I'm going to draw out my nation. Next week, Manny's going to be talking about the call of Abraham, the drawing out of the nation through whom all other nations will be blessed and ultimately reconciled to God. So I know that sounds complex. It is complex. It's the story of humanity. But the story of humanity is not just the story of humanity. It's the story of God, the story of Yahweh. And the single question that we should be asking ourselves as we go through all of this and, and as we stop and pause here, we should be saying, who is this creator God and what is he like? And then followed by, what does that mean I am and what does he want from me? And then what am I going to do with that? That's, that's the whole point. The point is to show what kind of God he is. And then what does that mean about us? And what decision do we make? Because he always puts our will is the, the, the key pivot factor in there. He doesn't violate our will. Doesn't mean we get everything we want, but in terms of relationship with them, we choose it or we reject it. And that's the whole point. Is he wants us to, to see him, to recognize that he is good, to recognize our need for him, and to be obedient to that. But the other side of that coin is you can be disobedient to that and rage against him. We talk about Psalm 2. It says, why do the nations rage? Why do they say, let us throw off this creator who we really don't like at all, and let's get out from under his thumb forever? And that ultimately ends up in Armageddon and the ultimate battle where Jesus comes back. So beginning to the end, you can understand the end a lot better if you understand the beginning. Some of that should sound familiar. We had uh, the uh, survey go out, and we did have some questions come in. So I'm going to start with some of those written questions. And the, again, this is not some theme. We just want to know where you guys are at and address some of these. I, we thank you for all of the questions that people have asked. And um, any of these we're willing to have offline conversations about, drill down on more. We always want to know where you are and what's going on, because I, I know what's going on in my head sometimes. And uh, Johnny and I, when we talk, know a little bit about what's going on in each other's heads, but we don't know what's going on in your head. And we, all we can do is present this stuff, and we pray constantly that God is helping us to bring what you need, and his Holy Spirit is responsible for that. But the whole point is he uses the church body to help enable that. That's what we're here for. We're, that's why we're studying his word, is so that the Holy Spirit can work in you. So if you have this blocking point, if you're running up against some kind of wall, or you have this thing rattling around in your mind that doesn't make sense, or this thing that makes you angry, or this thing that, that kind of paralyzes you with indecision or confusion, then let's talk about it. Because probably you're not the only one. And also, he can use us and the body and his word to help clarify those things and help comfort us. And ultimately, it's always going to be pointing back to what is this God that we serve and who is he and what is he like? Fair enough? Okay. 
let's uh, start with some of the questions. Uh, Brian Brown is not here, so if there's anything super technical, Johnny said he'll answer it. Um, yeah. Okay, question number one, and I'm not gonna go through all these verbatim, but um, the first one is we have talked about some extra biblical texts and some other ancient texts that are not in the Bible but are sometimes referenced in scripture. And we've even explained how it's helpful to, it can be helpful, it, it, depending on the kind of person you are and how your mind works and how deep you wanna go, I believe there's value to trying to understand uh, the Bible from having some idea of the context and perspective of the original people who were reading the Bible to whom it was specifically written. So if you want to understand Genesis, you can understand it, and you can understand a lot of valuable things from you know, a Western evangelical mindset. But I believe it makes a lot more sense if you can get a sense of the context for how an ancient Hebrew would have been reading it. And one of the good ways to do that is to say, what would ancient Hebrews have been familiar with culturally, mythologically? What cultures did they come out of? They had just spent all this time in Egypt. Okay, some of the stuff in Genesis kind of echoes some of this Egyptian mythology and some of these events from, e from how Egypt describes the creation of the world. So we've talked a little bit about other creation myths and other ancient civilizations and what they say and how they're similar and how they're different. And some of that stuff's really exciting because there's a lot of commonalities. I've had a lot of questions on specific texts, and quite one of the survey questions we had asked to clarify on the book of Jasher. So the book of Jasher, I've mentioned it offhand a couple of times. I don't think we've quoted it, and we haven't done any deep dive into the book of Jasher, even though it's mentioned in scripture. And the reason why is because unlike this Bible you have here, some of these other ancient texts, and the reason they're not in the Bible is because they haven't been preserved very well, and it's hard to understand where they really came from or if why this copy of it differs so much from this other copy of it. There was also this thing that happened, especially during the Second Temple period before Christ, where they were called um, pseudographs, where somebody would write something and name it as though somebody else had written it. And it wasn't fraudulent. They used that to try and draw like, hey, I'm writing about this thing. So for example, was the book of Enoch written by Enoch? Probably not. It, now, it could have been very influenced by Enoch, but Enoch was you know, pre-Noah. I have every reason to believe that Noah would have brought things on the ark that would have been written, because, and, and they would have been very accurate, because Noah was not very far removed from Adam at all. He was alive while Adam's son Seth was still alive. So they overlapped. So there could have been a lot that was preserved, but by the time you get all the way to the second temple period, Oh, do, when we say we have the book of Enoch, is it exactly whatever Enoch may have talked to his you know, great-grandson Noah about? Probably not. It's probably not. Does that mean it's of no value, though? Well, it's absolutely of value because you get several of the biblical authors referencing and alluding to the book of Enoch. So what's valuable about it? Does it mean we go look at, at Enoch and say, let's take, these, um, take the things in here and form doctrines around them? No. No, but we can understand the biblical readers, the original readers, what context they were thinking in and what things they were familiar with, and all of a sudden it makes some of this stuff make sense. You get these strange things that pop out, and you go, oh, he's referencing this over here, and he's using it to make an illustrative point. So Book of Jasher, we've done that less with. If you're gonna read one or the other, read the Book of Enoch. It's more distinctly preserved, it's more accurate, 
It's uh, less corrupted over time, and I think in some ways more helpful. Book of Jasher has um, more variation. There's been more fraud around it, and so it's a little difficult to know what the old parts were, which ones were correct. Whereas the Book of Enoch, we have, um, we have copies that were in the Dead Sea Scrolls that predate Christ, and then of course there were addendums to those things. So it's all it's it's very very complex stuff. And when you get to these ancient extra biblical texts, what should comfort you around that is this, this stuff that you actually have in your Bible is extremely well attested, extremely well attested. There are very very few disputes between ancient by ancient I mean pre-Christ uh, manuscripts of scripture. Because we, we have texts, we have the Masoretic text, we have the Septuagint, which was an ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew, and they are all very, very consistent. There are a few, a very few little parts where there's a slight difference between the Masoretic text and the other text. And, but the Masoretic text came later, so we usually default to the other one. Every now and then you'll see something when I'm reading a Bible verse where if you have a different translation, you're gonna go, Mine says something totally different. And we hit one of those last week. Does anybody remember what it was? Deuteronomy 32, 43. Do you remember that weird verse? Somebody asked about it. Um, Deuteronomy 32, 43. Some Bibles go with the Masoretic text, which says, worship him, all ye Gentile nations. The older texts say, worship him, you gods and you heavens. Not the same thing, is it? Well, the texts have a difference there. And if you have a good Bible, usually it will footnote that and say, by the way, this is a controversial verse, and there are some reasons why the ESV is going to have something different from the NIV on it. Do we make a huge deal out of it? No, we don't have to. We just have to recognize that we're reading ancient stuff that goes way back, but the Bible itself, the biblical texts, are extremely well documented. The extra biblical texts, of which the Bible mentions 77 books that are not in the Bible, and we have fragments or pieces or claim to have pieces of some of them. Some of them are much more complete, like Enoch. Some of them much less complete, like Jasher. But so anytime we've mentioned them or talked about them while we're up here, it's not to say, hey, your Bible's missing a bunch of stuff. Your Bible's not missing anything. Your Bible's not missing anything. The Word of God, this, is, this Word, as best as it can be understood and inspired, is a subset of the being of Christ. And that's why we treat it so reverently, because the Word of God is living and active, and Jesus is called the Word, and this is part of, of that. That's the physical part of it that we hold and that we understand, and the Word works in people by the Spirit. And that's not true of other texts. It doesn't mean he can't work with other words, but this is the only holy and inspired text which we would make that claim of and say this is a perfectly inspired text. Now, are there other things that God inspires that are good? Yeah, we sing them all the time. We sing these hymns and these songs that are powerful and work in people, and God uses those by his spirit. But you can't just go to any old ancient text and say, oh, this is also 4,000 years old, and we have some pieces of it, so therefore it must be inspired. No, the answer is that therefore it may be valuable to read and understand, and I've read a lot of it, and it's really helped me understand the context of Genesis a lot more, but that's not the same thing as saying, this is historically accurate, this will give you better, uh, you know, you can take this to the bank, because a lot of it you can't take to the bank. A lot of it actually flips the roles of God and Lucifer in the creation myth, or the destroyer and the creator, and it flips them around as to who's, who's who and which, one, which side you should be on. So you gotta be careful with it. Go into those things with your eyes wide open, but don't let anybody tell you that you shouldn't be 
paying attention to anything outside the Bible. Pay attention to it. There's lots of good stuff out there. It's just not the Bible. Okay, any, um, well, before we, let me get through some more of these before we, um, but I want you to ask for more on that if you need more. Yeah. Uh, Joshua, um, I don't have it written down necessarily. Um, at the book of Joshua, mentions it very directly. And then you get these other books that are referenced. When if you read uh, Kings and Chronicles, you'll say, like, isn't this written down in the book of Solomon? And we're like, well, which one specifically is the book of Solomon? Is it Song of Songs or is it Proverbs? And it turns out it's not either necessarily. Or isn't this written down in the, the annals of the kings of Judah? And some people claim that we have it. Some people say we don't have it. But we do know we have lots and lots and lots of ancient stuff. If you want to really go for a trip on the ancient texts, like, go, go to the other civilizations Go read what, like, what, you've heard me say this before, we always credit the Sumerians with inventing the concept of writing. I don't think they did, but they have some of the oldest written stuff. But nobody ever talks about what they wrote. And what they wrote is really eerie stuff. They wrote about an underworld and ancient gods and gods coming from above the heavens and interacting with men and these Nephilim-type creatures and this flood thing that happened. But, they, but they, they serve these demigod, false god beings that the Bible calls the gods of the nations. And so they have this whole mythos and creation around how it goes. But it's very, very, I think, helpful to know how that fed into Babylon, which fed into Egypt, which is where the Israelites spent 400 years and who were the original readers of Genesis. And so they're getting the contrast and the distinction. And a lot of the stuff makes more sense in that context. But it doesn't mean you go read an ancient... Um, you know, Mesopotamian text and just say, oh, well, this also must be just as true. Because what's, what do we know about demons? They lie. They lie. They're extremely deceptive. So when I read stuff that's demonically inspired, looking for what is this thing trying to get me to believe? What lie is it telling about the creator? What is it trying to twist me to and point me towards? What did the devil tell Eden or Eve in Eden? Well, you, don't, you won't die. You can be like God. God's holding out on you. You can actually ascend yourself above what he created you to be, and you can't trust him. Well, it's the same thing through all of those, all of those uh, ancient demonic texts. But that's what the Egyptians lived with and knew and spent a lot of time with. So we'll do, let's hit a few more of these. Okay, question number two. For clarification, after the flood, was there still some sort of the sons of God and daughters DNA floating around because there were giants in the promised land and Goliath and things like that? So, Johnny, you want to take that one away? Oh, uh, uh, my voice. No, oh, it lost its voice. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, sorry, but we'll, we'll, we'll pray for you. So. Okay, so there, there are two schools of thought on this. So, okay, you have the, the Nephilim, which are not synonymous with giants. The Greek word for Nephilim is gigantes, which sounds like giants to us, but that's not what it means. It means great and mighty ones. Could they also potentially have been giant? Probably so. And we actually had, you know, we, we did, went a little bit down the rabbit hole of were there giants on the earth? Do we have evidence that there were beings on the earth that don't fit our, tr our 
you know, what the, the, the evolution tree that we're taught in school? And the answer is yes, absolutely. There's actually tons of evidence for that. It just gets very, very pushed to the background and suppressed because it doesn't fit the narrative and because all the academics build their reputation on a very specific narrative and they don't want you to see that stuff because it makes them look foolish because they can't explain it. Not trying to make people look foolish, but it, we just, you know, we want to have our eyes open. So we spend a little bit of time on that. So the main schools of thought on where did that DNA come from post-flood? Okay, so there's a very good theological argument to be made that you have sons of God who are more like fallen angel-type beings, if you're going to use that term, and they had offspring with the daughters of men, and those offspring were called Nephilim. I think they're very equivalent to what God calls in the Old Testament what he refers to as abominations. And now when they died, in the, it's, and many of them in the flood, and there's other, Enoch goes into a lot more detail about the, the wars that happened between them. When they died, they had disembodied spirits, and those spirits had nowhere to go. And those spirits are really uh, probably what we call demons. Demons and fallen angel spirits are not necessarily the same thing. And, and that gets weird, but you go into Second Peter, and he talks about how disobedient spirits were imprisoned. Okay. So where did the giants come from after the flood then? So there's two schools of thought. One is that when you read the ark narrative and you have God saying, you know, bring each animal according to its kind. And so the animals came in the pairs according to their kinds, according to their kinds, according to their kinds. There's one thing on the ark that he doesn't say according to its kind, and that's the people. And Noah, he says specifically, Noah was a righteous man and perfect in his generation. But Shem, Ham, and Japheth had wives, and we don't know exactly where they came from. And so there's some people who say Shem, Ham, Shem's wife, Ham's wife, and Japheth's wife off, uh, may have carried some of this DNA over because we see in not the Shemite line, but in the Hamite line and the Japhethite line, certain nations have giants in them afterwards. And those nations, like Amalek and the Anakim, are the ones that God says, wipe that nation out completely. It shouldn't exist. And there's those few times in scripture that so many people get so up in arms about as he identifies very specific lines and says, eliminate this line, eliminate that line, eliminate the other. It's okay if you get along with these others, just don't worship their gods. So he highlights a few, and those come from the lines of Ham and Japheth. And so did, is it possible that Ham's wife and Japheth's wife, who it's very specific, are on the ark, had some of that DNA? It's possible. So that's one school of thought. The other school of thought is that the, the angels and those um, demonic level creatures continued to have relationships with human women after the flood. That's another school of thought. Is that true? It could be. There's nothing in the Bible that says it never, ever, ever happened. It just doesn't give the same narrative that it gives to pre-flood. So I can't definitively say, no, that didn't happen. There are some theologians who would say, no, it, it never happened. I don't know. I don't know uh, if it was just a carryover. I do, that I have a sense and a personal belief based on a, a lot of study that there is some of that that still goes on and that this corruption of humanity through genetic manipulation is still a thing that's active today. And I think that when we get to the end times, whether it's in our generation or the following generation, but it does feel like it's getting closer, um, I think we're gonna see some of that supernatural abomination activity again, and then it's going to be very obvious, just like it was very obvious to the ancient civilizations. They, I mean, they all accepted it just as a given. That's why they have these abominable creatures that show up like the, 
you know, the dude with a lion body, man head, and wings shows up on almost every single uh, continent in almost every single ancient civilization. Where did he come from? Was he a thing? He probably was a thing. More questions? While you guys are chewing on that. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Thank you for asking that. That's very common. Um, so there's, there are other, other churches explain Nephilim away in a couple of ways. One is they all blame um, Seth, not this Seth specifically, but the one after whom he's named. They say that, that uh, the sons of God are actually the sons of Seth and the daughters of men are actually the daughters of Cain, and it was just this mixing of righteous and unrighteous people. Uh, no, because Noah was descended from Seth. He was of the Sethite line. So it didn't go away. So that Sethite discussion is, I'll just say it, I believe that's a, a, a wrong interpretation of Scripture. It's not what it says. When it says sons of God, it says Beneha Elohim. It doesn't say sons of Cain or sons of Seth. And when it says saw daughters of men, it says daughters of Adame. It's humans, daughters of Adam. It doesn't say daughters of Cain. And, and not to mention, it wouldn't explain why those offspring would be abominable, mighty men in the earth who corrupted and caused all sorts of issues. So that's kind of a way of trying to say this didn't, it says it happened, but it didn't really happen. It's all symbolic. That's a, a weak-minded interpretation of Scripture. Now, the, what you're saying is some churches have said, well, um, angels can't procreate with people. And they're taking that from when Jesus says, in heaven, they will be like the angels, neither marrying nor being given in marriage. It's not the same thing as saying they can't procreate. It's saying they don't have, they don't have a marital union. And he's talking about in heaven. He's not discussing, well, what happens if they're completely disobedient? What happens if they want to completely disobey and go try to create their own demi-civilizations and corrupt what God made? And I don't think there's anything, there's nothing in scripture that directly prohibits that from being possible. But the, you get certain lines of, of thinking and certain lines of theology that take that statement from Christ and say, well, therefore, you can conclude this and this and this and this and this, and then somehow this thing that says happened in Genesis 6 never happened. But it says that it happened. It's a good question. More questions? Yes? Yeah, very good question. Um, okay, so what you're referring to, thank you, Craig. Craig always asks hard questions. I'll repeat the question. So what Craig is asking is the sons of, so in, in Deuteronomy 32, in the Song of Moses, it says when God divided the nations, i.e. at Babel, then he allocated them according to the number of the sons of God. And what Craig is asking is, are those the same sons of God that it says disobeyed and violated God's command in Genesis 6? It's a very good question. The sons of God is referring to a class of being. It's referring to what some call the divine council or the heavenly council. 
And the sons of God is a phrase that's used a few times in the Old Testament, and it's always referring to supernatural, highly powerful, created divine beings. And Jesus, and who is Yahweh, is preeminent among that class. And that class as a whole is called the Elohim. Elohim is a plural word. It just means class of being. You can get really weird about that, but that's actually how it's used in Scripture. It actually says God sits among the Elohim, and he rules over the Elohim. Not something that gets taught in Sunday school in the Western church, but that's what it says. So when, so was it the same specific Elohim? First of all, we don't know what that council is or how many are there. We, I don't know. The script, scripture doesn't define it exactly. My guess is it was not the same specific beings because those specific beings were in violation and disobedience to God. Because then when we get to Psalm 82, which I, I highly encourage you to read on your own time, and if your translation doesn't make any sense, read it in several translations. ESV is one really good one. You get, the, uh, you get God scolding the gods of the nations because they have done a very bad job running the nations, and they've perverted justice and turned the nations into worshiping them instead of worshiping Yahweh. And so, therefore, they're going to get punished for it. And he says, you are gods. I say you will die like men. So I think what happened is he allocated the nations, and basically God, God administratively says, here, you run this nation, you run this nation, you run this nation, you all know who's really God, and they get caught up in it and say, well, we're going to have the nations worship me instead because I'm better than they are, and so then the nations get all over the place, and these fallen gods become extremely corrupt and turn to all sorts of nasty behaviors and human sacrifice, and that's why God is always telling the Israelites, don't go after those other gods, don't go after those other gods, I'm your God, I'm the one who's allocated to you, and, and in fact, I'm going to have to destroy those other ones. And he does that through Egypt and through the, the book of Exodus. So same exact, you know, if, if, if there's a son of God that has this name who, uh, you know, fell from heaven to procreate with human women, did, was that one assigned a nation? I don't think so. And the and ancient mythology says no, but I don't lean on the ancient mythology to have the, the only answer. Good question. Um, I want to address one more because that brings up a really good point. Somebody asked, why would God create all of this knowing that there would be heavenly beings who would betray him and seek to take what is his? And then furthering, there'd be a list of creations that go against them, and he created humans too. We aren't really the main picture, but what was he doing? What was God, what was he thinking when he did all this? Why would he create a class of beings that turned out to be so rebellious and then allocate something to them that they're going to turn into additional rebellion against him? That's a good question. You know, what, what is God doing? Job asks that question all through the book of Job, and then you get to chapter 38, and God says, okay, you're asking me a lot of questions. Let me ask you some questions. And Job says, oh, no. <laughs> and, and, and God asks him a whole lot of questions, says, you don't have any answers, do you? Yeah, that's what I thought. And that's kind of the end of the book. <laughs> and Job's like, okay, I'm sorry. You know, you're God, and I'm, and I'm, an, I'm Job. Um, that's one of the lessons from the book of Job. So I think, though, he gives us a lot of proxies for it. Why, why do so many of us in this room have children? Is it because we believe that they're always going to, going to be obedient? You know, when you're t when you, as a young couple, you're saying, hey, let's, I, I don't like the phrase start a family because when you get married, you are a new family. But hey, let's grow our family. Let's, let's have some other little creatures show up in this house and let's see how that goes. <laughs> and um, 
Sometimes my wife and I look at our kids, we go, where exactly did you come from? <laughs> it was the two of us, and then there was you, and, you know, so it, and it's this crazy thing that we all enter into, yet somehow we know that there's something inherently deeply meaningful about it. There's something about it that speaks to what it is to exist in the image of God, is that he would perpetuate that image and that he would see copies of that image make decisions. And so when, you know, when, when we have children, it's not because we think that they're going to be perfect. And if you do, then don't think that, because they're not going to be. It's, that's, where, that's where the whole therapy industry comes from. Um, the, when we have children, if, you're, if you know Scripture, you're expecting, this is going to be hard. This child may break my heart, sometimes once or twice a day. There's going to have to be discipline and lessons and training and teaching. And at the end of the day, I don't get to determine who this child is. You have kids and you spend you know, the next 20 odd years figuring out kind of who they are and trying to point them the right direction along the way, but you don't get to determine who they are. And if you're trying to determine who they are, stop, because that's going to cause problems. Instead, recognize what God made and try and point that child to the truth. Point them to God, because only God knows really, really, really who and what they are. Our job is just to, to help them see the light along the way and try and give them a sense of his love and that, they, and that he can be trusted. Well, I don't think that's so different from what God was doing and is doing. What are we? When, when it says we're made in the image of God, then one way of thinking about that, and this is going to get kind of, of strange, but think about God, who is the I am, saying, you also get to be. But there is only one I am. There is the great I am. But you are, and you are, and you are, but you're not the I am. So what are we? We are something. Well, Scripture explains that if we are of God. We are in Christ. We are of Christ, in him. We live and move and have our being. So you think of it as you have this great I am who is I aming through us, and the thing that we get is this will to say, are we going to take our amnes towards him, or are we going to try to move away from his amnes? And if you move away from M, then you just get not. So whatever is not of him is not. That's destruction. That's choosing the path of moving ultimately, infinitely away from God, and it's a path of destruction because you can't be you can't be an I am completely separate from the only I am. So in other words, what is God doing through all of this? He's he's running his own nature through a bazillion ex experiments, really. He's proving it here, and he's proving it here, and he's proving it here, and the whole point of it is that ultimately, and it's not that he doesn't know the outcome, the outcome is he's I am at the end of it. And anything that chooses that reconciles infinitely unto his emness. Anything that rejects it reconciles into notness. That's how Christ can say all things in heaven and on earth, all created things, heaven and on earth and under the earth, ultimately turn to me and reconcile to me, through me, to Yahweh. That's what he's doing. That's what you are. You're a microcosm of I amness with a will that's either going to reconcile to him or away from him. And so when we say, well, what is he doing? What is he trying to prove? He's proving that he's God. And we're all proving that he's God. And no matter how hard we try, we're never going to successfully prove that we can be God separate from God. Can't do it.
And that's the story of scripture. Let's have the worship team come on up. Let's, uh, let's get one more question. We've got time. I've got a, a couple more written ones, but if you, I want to give you guys a chance to throw something out. It doesn't have to be on the same theme. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very, very, very good question. He's asking about the, the nature of hell, and if, if hell is where God is not, then is it just a nothingness, or is it a torment? Well, remember, so what, let's start with what hell is not. Hell is not you being in a place with God or some representative of God just, you know, flailing you infinitely for your sin. That's messed up, twisted theology. That's not what it is. Hell is where God is not, but you are. You want to be your emness your apart from God? Hell is where you are. And there is no God, meaning God exists, but he, he's removed himself from there. And we say, well, is that torment? Well, it is torment because God is the source of all that is good and right. He's the source of everything beautiful. He's the source of life. He's the source of perfection. He's the source of beauty. Everything that is good is of God. And when you lift all of that out, yet you still have these eternal beings you're going to be left with you, if you're in hell, you're going to be left with you just infinitely turning into yourself without God. And many who even are alive today want that because they hate God. And they choose that, and they demand that, and they insist on it. And is it going to be torment? Yes, absolutely. But it's not torment because God's inflicting eternal punishment. It's because there is a natural consequence to being away from God. Go back to the, the Garden of Eden. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, were not evicted from the Garden of Eden as a punishment. The actual specific discipline that came as a result of their obedience was very specific. God cursed the ground because of Adam and said, by the sweat of your brow. And then the childbearing process for Eve, he said, in suffering, you're going to bear children. And then he said, and now, guys, you have to leave. Because how can you live with God when you are rebelling against God? So he's saying, okay, now you're in the, the wilderness, this place of death. And instead of taking God's uh, image to the ends of the earth like he had told them to, instead of multiplying, not multiplying, but instead of growing the emness the, the of God through all of creation, now they've just got their own isness, And it doesn't go well. And it's not, he's not throwing them out because he's trying to, to punish them. He's throwing them out because you can't be in the presence of perfection and good when you've just turned your back on all that's good and perfect. So hell is like a, 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 an infinite multiplier of that. It's like, good. Like we think that we see the wilderness in Scripture so often this chaotic, deathly place. Well, but God still at least participates in the wilderness. He leads people through it. He brings manna. He guides them through it. He brings water. He gives them, he, he shows them the, the light. He gives Moses. He gives his locks. He wants to bring them to the promised land. Well, imagine if you remove all that and say, no, it's just wilderness. God's not there. There's, there's just you, and you're going to live with that in eternity, and of course that's going to be torment. Job describes it as being eaten by an infinite crushing blackness of death because God is life. 
And Job describes it almost like being swallowed by this, this everlasting snake of, of, of horrid darkness, because God is also light. And that's just one of the metaphors that he gives when he talks about being apart from God. So you take that to the infinite level, and that's hell. It's not being flogged by an angel for all of eternity. And heaven, likewise, is not just sitting around and plucking at a harp for all of eternity. If we learn anything from Genesis, it's that there's a very complex ecosystem of spiritual interaction that's going on, and that the point, and we've talked about this a lot, is that God is going to ascend us out of these broken, dusty bodies that we have and ascend us and reconcile us to himself and establish us as part of his heavenly concept. And we don't really know much about how that looks, but we get a few hints where Paul says, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? I don't even know how or why that would work. He says, don't worry about it. It's not your job right now. But that's the kind of thing that he, did, that he gives us hints of through Scripture. Good questions. Okay, let's, um, let's take some time to worship together. Elders at AlatheaChurch.org. Send your questions if you have them, if you're stuck on something, if something's not making sense. And, um, or grab me or Johnny. And uh, if it's a technical question, grab Brian next time you see him. Thanks, guys. Um, as we've been going through Genesis and this entire time, um, this has been a challenging book. I mean, incredibly challenging book. I've learned a ton as we've been going through it. Um, but it also has been challenging and kind of put me in a corner at certain points and, you know, wrestling with things that I'd never thought about before and things that seem really strange. And so there are times when I'm up here preaching or when others are up here preaching when I, I can feel the wrestling in the room, right? Like it's, there's, the gears are turning. And so I can feel that today. I, can, I feel like the gears are turning. Um, there, there might be some discomfort in the room. There might be some difficulty in the room. Um, and so there's a couple things I want to say about that. The first thing is, uh, I, I believe that Joel is a gift to the church, right? Amen. Um, he has a piece of the puzzle that I don't think I'll ever have. Does that make sense? Uh, you know, I have, I have great respect for Joel and he knows things that I don't know, um, which causes us to, comp- to complement each other pretty well, I think, as teachers. Uh, but I just want to—I want to emphasize, like, like the brother is a gift to the church. I'm probably never going to read the book of Jasher, to be honest with you. I'm probably not. I don't know if that offends anybody here, but I'm probably not going to read it, right? Um, that's not—that's not—that's not my lane. I try to stay in my lane, you know. That's Joel's lane, and it's a good lane. And it's good for the church. Um, I also want to encourage you that there are. If the gears are turning and you're struggling with some of the things, I want to remind you that there's a lot of mystery in this stuff. Amen? Like, there's a lot of mystery, and we don't know everything. Okay? And so I'm going to bring you to a couple of scriptures. There's one scripture, uh, Proverbs 3, 5, which I think is incredibly important when we're going through this kind of stuff. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path right? So that's a very strange passage, isn't it? I mean, what do you, what's left if, if the Lord's saying, don't lean to your own understanding? Because obviously what's required of us and the reason we're even wrestling with this stuff is because there's a cognitive piece of this whole thing, right? The cognitive pieces matter. The logic matters. The facts matter. The truth matters. But I think we've got to go back to emphasis, right? Knowledge is good, but not without life, You need life first. Where does life come from? 
Where does life come from? Somebody tell me. It comes from God himself. Amen? Life comes from God. If you don't have life, then your knowledge doesn't matter. You need life. If you have life, then knowledge can begin to complement life. Amen? You can grow in maturity, right? And we want to grow. Like, we want to grow in understanding. But I want to just encourage those of us who are wrestling, um, it's not... It's not for all of us to go read the book of Jasher. Amen? It's not for all of us to go read the book of Enoch. Is it good? And is it for some of us? Yes, it is. And will some of us be benefited by it? Yes, we will. Would some of us destroy ourselves by doing it? Probably. Right? Um, so I just want to encourage you with that and then encourage you with, uh, with the words, of, words of, uh, of the Lord through Paul. We now see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Right? As, as, as intelligent and as wise as we get on this earth, it's still going to just be a fraction of the picture. We're all going to get surprised in heaven. Amen? We're all going to be surprised. I mean, I think delightfully surprised. Like, oh, I was way off on that. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Now I see face to face, and it doesn't matter because I get to be with you. Amen? All right, so let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we're going to continue to worship. Uh, Lord God, I thank you for all the people in this room. I thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you for faith. I thank you for truth. I thank you for life. And I just pray that you would continue to shepherd us through, Lord, as we, you know, what I, one of the things I respect about Joel is he doesn't shy away from the difficult things. You know, I, as I have a tendency to do, he doesn't do that. God, you've made him a man who's very bold and courageous to go and wrestle head on with the difficult things. And, uh, and I praise you for that. I praise you for that, Lord God, and that we're going to continue to go and do that. But in that, I pray that you would shepherd our souls. Shepherd our souls, Lord God. I pray that none here um, would, uh, would find a stumbling block in these things, Lord God. But I pray that the simple faith of a child would sustain us through these difficult conversations and through difficult content. That that simple faith, because we're not here, Lord, to, to, to evaluate the faith, like whether we want to believe it or not, and whether we can get enough of a factual basis that we want to believe. That's not where we're coming from. We already believe. We already know that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and we're trying to learn more about him. And so let it be, Father, I pray, let the things be in order, let our hearts be in order, let our minds be in order, that we might all continue to profit from your word. And bless every person in this room, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.